Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 370, is recorded live June 7th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it is the perfect time of year if you're in the Great Lakes area to be getting under the water. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. And the weather has been excellent. Oh, I love this weather. Just a, just enough rain to keep things from turning crispy brown, but uh, just the right temperatures. It cooled off a little bit. We had a little bit of sticky going on, and then it's kind of calmed right down. Don't even have to have the air conditioners on. That's for sure. But I was talking to some farmers the other day, and it's like the fields are still too wet to go out there and put something out. Yeah, it's been selective. I saw a few farmers trying to do some seed, but they're they're starting with their higher elevation of land. Anything that had any low spots or water had pooled. Uh, in, in fact, if you look at any, we call them the farm ponds, where it's the low areas and they they just can't. That's the ponds are twice the size they are normally, which means that that ground is pretty soupy. This is also where you see uh, the big rigs going in and pulling tractors out because they've just sunk to their axles. Yeah, but that just means that you know it's a perfect time for farmers to take up scuba diving. <laughs> see if we can convert any. In fact, I, I say that I don't think I know a single farming friend of mine who does scuba diving. Maybe that's a correlation somehow. Uh, yeah, they're too busy. <laughs> <laughs> I they're they're busy all year round. I uh, I'm I'm glad they do it because I like to eat, but uh, not the life for me. I mean, because if, if they're not out there planting and hoping for something, they've still got the animals to take care of. Because almost all of them have animals. Yeah, they they've they always got something going on. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Derek has shown up and others as we get into the summer season. It seems people pop in a little bit later and later because they're going out and getting some dives in. So we'll go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have is police in Italy are hunting for thieves who stole the underwater statue of Christ. Thieves in Italy have stolen the underwater statue of Christ, which is an attraction for divers and location of scuba diving couples to tie the knot, the bronze statue, statue Christ of the Deep, has stood on the seabed off the Adriatic coast since it was installed in 1994. Its theft was discovered this week when divers went to carry out routine maintenance and cleaning of the artwork, which is 32 inches tall and weighs 33 pounds. Police believe the statue may have been stolen to order, perhaps by a collector. It was made by a well-known Italian sculpture called Vito Pancella who died in 2005. The statue is located at a depth of about 20 feet near the village of Rocco San Giovanni in the central region of Abruzzo. Abruzzo sounds like some sort of alcoholic drink. Uh, this is a deplorable act that has affected the whole local community, said Andrea Monaco, president of Ursa Minor, a diving club whose members discovered the theft. It's not just a religious symbol, but also the venue for our annual torch-bearing ceremony at sea, held the first Sunday of every August. Scuba diving couples have even gotten married in front of the statue, he said. It is one of a dozen of underwater statues dotted around the coast of Italy, many of them either figures of Christ or the Madonna. 
One of the most famous is an eight-foot-stall bronze statue of Christ that sits in the seabed in the Bay of San Rituso in the northwestern region of Liguria. It's placed there in 1954 and submerged at a depth of 56 feet. By the way, if you're going to Google any of these, you're not going to find them because I've mispronounced them to the point where who knows what you're going to find. An exact replica stands in the seabed off the coast of Key Largo in Florida. Well, the price of bronze could be up there, so somebody can melt that one down. Yeah, 33 pounds. That's not terribly heavy. And at 32 well, no, inches. The, yeah, for the small one. I was yeah. talking about the eight-foot one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, this is the small one that they, they took, 32 inches and 33 pounds. Didn't say what it was made of, did they? Mm, I thought they said bronze. Yeah, the bronze statue. So it was made out of bronze. Yeah, well, hopefully if somebody didn't melt it down and somebody's got it in a private collection, as opposed to being melted down. Yeah, at least there's some hope of somebody getting it back again. Yeah. Well, and that's a lot of work to go down there to go steal that to go melt it down. I don't know, would, would it be enough money? Thirty-three. Well, depending on how much the statue is worth, 33 pounds is nothing. You know, boat motor weighs more than that. Right. So I'm just thinking, well, it's not hard to pick up. I'm just saying as far as scrap value, and, you know, even if it was. No, it's got to be for a collector. Yeah. The next article is Marine saves Chinese scuba diver from dr- drowning off Okinawa. Gunnery Sergeant Scott Dan was assisting his wife with an underwater rescue course last month in Medea Point, Okinawa, when he noticed a Chinese scuba diver flailing in panic. Xing Yi Si who was honeymooning off the southern Japanese island prefecture during the May 20th, 20th incident, ripped off her mask. When a dive leader put it back on, she pulled out a regulator, which she also replaced, said Don, who initially assumed the two were training. But when the woman again removed her mask and regular Don, 3rd Maintenance Battalion Training Chief ca- uh, based at Camp Kisner, immediately responded. She was flailing the water, which is a usual sign of a panicked diver. When Don reached sea, she was 30 feet away. He put the regulator back in her mouth. She sped it out. He grabbed it, pushed it back against her teeth until she opened up, he said. Don then held the regulator to her face and signaled for the dive leader that they may need to head up. By the time they reached the surface, C was unresponsive and barely breathing. Her lips were blue. Her eyes rolled back in her head. She was foaming at the mouth because of the seawater she had ingested. Don inflated her buoyancy compensation or buoyancy control vest and began towing her to shore. When they reached land, he carried her up several flights of stairs, helped her breathe, through an oxygen tank while his wife, April, called for paramedics. Don laid Sia on her side where she coughed up seawater. I put my head in her chest to listen for breathing, he said. I didn't hear any gurgling. After 10 to 15 minutes, the color began to return to her face. Sia made a full recovery after a short hospital stay and finished her honeymoon with a snorkeling trip before returning to Hong Kong, Don said. Uh, the pair have spoken several times since it's now a friend on social media. I don't know if my husband could find another girl like me, C said in a Marine Corps statement about the incident. I can't express how grateful I am for Don. wonder what happened to the dive leader that was with her to begin with. Well, was that a, they were, she was on a honeymoon. Yeah, I don't know. They didn't, they didn't say. When I first read the article, I, I almost took it as, it was just a group out diving, not necessarily a trip. But with a panic diver, it could, it could have been one of those resort things. Hey, everybody, sit in the pool for 10 minutes, and then we'll drag you around the uh, bay here. I'm just curious what they meant by dive leader, too, though. Yeah, it's, a, it's just a generic term, and it, it didn't say dive master or instructor. It said dive leader. So, And it didn't say whether or not it was on the surface or not, yet later in this, I assume it was underwater. 
Because they signaled to go up. Yeah, they needed to go up. Now, wouldn't it, if you were dealing with somebody who was panicking, wouldn't you slowly head to the surface if you were the... Yeah, right. By the time you've given it to them, you're already starting up. So by the time she spits it out again, you know, you're still continuing up. Right. I would think. But again, panic situation. Yeah. Who can, you know, all bets are off. Yeah, because because as the if you're if you've got a hold of her and you're trying to get the regulator back in her mouth, it does make it hard to you know manipulate your gear and dump air and do other things. Yeah, but looking at the size of her versus him, he definitely had control of the situation. <laughs> He's at least three times her size. Yeah. So that's you, we've we've made comments many times that we like everybody to take this uh, diver uh, safety training courses because then. You may be able to help somebody else, and here's a case of where he was actually doing that. Well, the the key item there was panic, mm-hmm. and uh, the night's topic also may deal with that same topic. So this is maybe uh, fortuitous. I'll look forward to that. And then we have a scuba diving, was it says Scuba Lodge Dive Center. Where is this? This is uh, Curaco. Organized a successful cleaning dive. Uh, the dive action... Last Sunday, with 14 experienced divers, as successful is according to Dan Dreschel, manager of Scuba Lodge Diving Center. The volunteers who participate in the cleaning dive consist of local divers and tourists from America, France, and the Netherlands. We got a lot of positive feedback from our cleaning dives. Two California participants have extended their vacations specifically to take part in the cleanup dive last weekend. Besides the cleaning activity, it was also a pleasant afternoon with a motivated group with the same goal, leave the sea cleaner than we see it. Participating divers have main, mainly cleaned up fishal equipment. Uh, it concerns fishing lines, hooks, nets, and other dirt that fishermen leave unintentionally on the reef. The material poses a serious threat to sea turtles and other, other underwater life. Divers also found a car tire, different bottles, and a lot of plastic waste. Since last year, the dive center is organizing a cleanup dive every first Sunday of the month in collaboration with Project Aware, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation preserving the underwater world through information, lobby, and action. The next cleaning dive for Scuba Lodge will take place on Sunday, July 1st, 2018. I mean, do we have time to make that one? Yeah, they could just uh, set us uh, some air transportation and uh, hotel accommodations, and we'd be able to go. Yeah, I'd pay for my own air. What, was it? what, what would it take to get to Carico? I'm not, even... um, I'm not sure, but they'd probably be able to hire a lot of locals for that amount for us to go there. <laughs> well, I noticed that the banner at the top of the website is to, is to try and get you to visit. Well, yeah. Yep. I, probably a heavy tourism business. Sounds like. Then we have a record-breaking world scuba diver, Ray Woolery. I said Woolery. There's no R in there. Woolly? Ray Woolly. Subject of a new film. The Guinness World Record Breaking Diver is the star of a new documentary. Ray Woolley gained global attention when he spent his 94th birthday on August 28th last year diving to the sunken wreck of the Zenobia Ferry in Larnaca. He saw him claim a Guinness World Record as the world's oldest scuba diver. He dove to a depth of 38.1 meters for 41 minutes. He is now the focus of a documentary, Life Begins at 90, which will premiere at the 13th Cyprus International Film Festival this month, highlighting his passion for diving and healthy approach to aging. Ray said that he is delighted with the film and getting used to all the attention he's garnering. He added, it all comes about being active. That's how I've been noticed. 
The attention is rather nice at my age. I'm doing something that I enjoy. People see me doing something a little different than from what's normal. If I can inspire just one person to get out of their chair and do something, then that's great. Ray, originally from Port Sunlight, now lives in Lamasol, Cyprus, started swimming at his local scuba baths at age five. In Cyprus, he dives at the British Subaquatic Club, BSAC at RAF. God, everybody just likes these words. Accordity? And begins diving with Portland and Weymouth British Subaquatic Club in 1960. His claim for the title comes after completing 39 dives on his 93rd year, the final one taking place at Latchy Water Sports and Paphlos. However, he actually completed 51 dives in his 93rd year. Ray carries his own equipment unattended, and during warmer months, he swims two to three times a day in his pool. Ray is also a World War II veteran who served the Royal Navy and SBS Special Force 281 in the uh, Dockenese. After the war, he trained as a radio engineer whilst working for the British Foreign Office, was posted to Cyprus in 1964. In December, he was awarded the Cyprus Hearts of Gold Lifetime Achievement Award, which was presented to him by the British High Commission to Cyprus, Matthew Kidd, Cyprot MP, and then some other person's name, which I'm not even going to try. Uh, Ray has vowed to hold on to the Guinness World Record and will again dive that same wreck later this year. His daughter, who lives in the UK, also stars in the film, said, I'm very proud of him. He's really an inspiration to so many people. He's a great example of healthy aging. Ken, who's a member, uh, a member of a scuba diving club, and uh, Ray's son said that maybe scuba diving is the key to longevity. It would be nice if all of us could keep that, that up and also have the availability to, to swim and dive like you do. So just move to Cyprus. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, more power to him, and I hope he can keep that up for another 10 years. Then yeah. he'll really set a record. That would be great. Then then this I, this article caught my attention just because it's title. It, it said, everything I need to know about business I learned from scuba diving. And I'm going to cut down to the chase. Um, and he, he talked about different, you know, he, he was looking for topics that, you know, have a have a subject line where everything you need to know can be gleaned from a single source. Uh, let me see. So what does scuba diving have to do with running a business? And he said, here are three don'ts to consider. Don't hold your breath. While it might seem counterintuitive, you never, ever hold your breath while scuba diving. If you ascend while holding your breath, you risk injuring your lungs, kind of like inflating a balloon until it pops. The same advice goes to the metaphorical sense of running a business. Don't wait for something to happen that might not. Don't wait for sales to pick up. A competitor may fail or that a problem employer to finally get his act together consider instead a more proactive approach. The next one is don't go it alone. Scuba divers are here to practice with at least two buddies staying together in the event that one requires assistance from the other. It could become a matter of life or death if an emergency arises and a diver needs his buddy to share air. Entrepreneurs sometimes go into business with buddies and sometimes not. One way or another, entrepreneurs shouldn't go it alone. Help is close at hand from mentors, business organizations, even government agencies. In the Grand Valley, the Business Incubator Center, Colorado, Mesa University, and Factory offer a range of resources take advantage of them. And they said, don't try to do too much too soon. Nobody descends to 130 feet or enters a cavern on his first dive. Well, you can. <laughs> that requires accumulated knowledge and competence gained from 
the instruction experience. The alternative is potential disaster. Entrepreneurs who enjoy immediate success face the temptation to quickly expand when their more measured approach might work better because your decision on realistic assessments might not, uh, uh, assessment of not only the conditions, but also your capabilities. Well, those are three good points. Yeah. So you can certainly tie that into business. I, I, I find that uh, most people I know who scuba dive are uh, of a similar mindset. You see a lot of, uh, and, you, and you don't have to be this mindset, but you see a lot of technical, detail-oriented people tend to really enjoy scuba diving. And that leads into the nice part where people make money scuba diving. Yeah, hopefully they can if you're, if you're lucky. The CDA resort looks for a diver to retrieve golf balls, uh, approximately 50,000 of them. More than 25,000 balls are collected from the lake at the end of each season. After two years, Krem estimates roughly 50,000 balls have been collected on the uh, lake bed. This is in Idaho. If you're an, ex- an enterprising diver, the resort golf course may have an opportunity for you. As of now, there's a higher than normal amount of golf balls sitting in the lake bed beneath the resort's world-famous floating green. Traditionally, divers will retrieve the ball from the lake throughout the season. The divers pay for the right to get the balls and then typically sell them used. But for some reason, the resort hasn't had any divers for the last couple of seasons. It should be interesting, diver Mike Holbert said. Holbert has never retrieved golf balls himself, but has donned his scuba gear as a contractor to perform maintenance on the floating green. You go along, you'll see banks of them, hundreds of them lined up, kind of uh, like looking for Easter eggs. According to the resort, over 25,000 balls are collected from the lake at the end of each season. By creme estimates, are roughly 50,000 balls sitting underwater. Golf course staff place their estimate lower at 30,000 balls. It's not clear why any divers and the resort haven't come to terms to retrieve the ball. Resort spokesman previously told KREM that there were plenty of talented, qualified divers in the area, but the opportunity wasn't a good fit for the divers. If there's a lot of them, I'm sure it's pretty cool how they collect underwater, Holbert said. I can't say I've ever taken a five-gallon pan over the years, he said, chuckling. There's got to be more to this than meets the eye because I'd like to know what kind of bottom it's got. Is that fresh or salt water? You got alligators out there? You know, there's got to be some reason local divers wouldn't do that if it's been two or three years. Well, kind of reading between the lines, it sounded like you had to give the uh, resort part of the cut. Well, so, you've got to have, I mean, what's your intended to go out there and get it? Right. A lot of places you go for the a company that collects them, and then you get a percentage or, you know, of each, each of the balls because they still got to clean them, sort them, grade them, and sell them, and you get a cut. Yeah. The other one is you pay for the opportunity, but then you've got to be responsible for where do I sell them, how do I clean them. Yeah. So maybe, you know, negotiations are not acceptable to everybody, obviously. Hmm. But that could be quite interesting. Yeah. Well, what I'm I'm thinking it's fifty thousand balls. I don't want to pick up fifty thousand balls. I mean, I I can pick up a couple each dive, but to spend your whole time down there doing that, I'm I'm thinking, well, could you do some sort of suction dredge or? Uh, well, I don't know what the bottom's like. Yeah, and you just or you, or you get the harvester and just run it across the bottom. It was a flat bottom with no weeds. Yeah, it, it had a somewhat hard pan, but. Uh, looking at this, it's in Idaho, so I'm picturing it's probably fresh water. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm looking at the and he said floating island. Yeah, it, it's an it's kind of like uh, I, I picture that this golf course needed some sort of 
uh, catch or it's a way of extending. I mean, you, you look at that for just being able to put a green out there. You have a tee on the shore. You've just added one more hole without taking up any significant real estate. Well, you still got to get from shore to the island, too, and back. Yeah, well, that, that's the, because you've got the rental of the uh, the golf cart. They must have some sort of little boat that Amphibian they... Amphibian golf cart. An Indian golf cart? Amphibian. Oh, Amphibian. Ooh, the sub. Yeah, they got to get over to the island. Wow. Or well, a sub. Yeah. Underwater if, tunnel. Yeah. Boy, a sub. You could just pick up the golf balls as you come back. I mean, if you got a buck a ball, which is probably not reasonable unless they're a nice high quality... You know, that would be $50,000. Now, how much dive time could you do for fifty grand, minus whatever contractual they'd want? Hmm. How much would you do that for? I don't know. I mean, so it, many variables. Like the depth, you don't know the depth. The depth, the water temperature, the visibility. Uh, the aquatic know. life they're going to run into. <laughs> yeah. That would have a lot for me there. Hmm. Yeah. It's, well, I, I think it sounds like everybody who really want to do it, they they may have, pri- like, overpriced it. Right. And, How much I want to go out there and find them. Yeah, and, and you do it once, and then you kind of, like, oh, piss on that, and you don't come back. And we know how large local community uh, diving clubs are, so it's probably gotten to a point where, you know, everybody local and obvious is, is already kind of waved off on it. Yeah, there's one thing about being fun, and then there is the other about it being a job. Right. Then it ceases to be fun. I, I should have. I wish I'd have known you had this article. There's another one, and I've got to remember why I read it today. A uh, million dollars is what he's been getting for diving for golf ball. A million dollars. Wow. A million dollars. So now i got to go back and find that, too. I'll do a catch-up. Now, is that a million dollars, like, you know, over his diving career or just in one season? No, it's got to be over his diving career because I had seen something about the same guy earlier, and he's part of a corporation that farms yeah. out. They have the contract with the golf clubs. Yeah. So when you go, you know you're going to get the balls and you get a percentage. Yeah, I saw something on TV once, or it was something similar, where they had made a a golf ball sorting machine. So what you did, you know, they basically had all the, it was homemade, and it was all these funnels. Oh, I know what it was, Dirty Jobs. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, they had uh, Roke. I would say Rokan. That wasn't Mike Rowe. Uh, Mike Rowe was on the show, and that was one of the things they were doing was sorting the balls. But you had to be able to look at the ball, identify it, then put it in one of these uh, feeders. And then they were sorting them by condition. And, you know, the bad balls become those uh, driving balls, you, you know, the red stripes around them. Um, I worked at a driving range one year. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Years so, and years ago. Yeah, so those are the ones. So the only ones they really sold for any significant money were the pristine, high-quality ones, you know, those cheapy ones. If you if you bought it cheaply at a big-box retailer, they're, you're really not going to get much. Yeah, absolutely. And then it also seemed, if I remember correctly, that they do get waterlogged. So the longer that— Well, especially if they got, if they got any kind of cuts or stuff like that, yeah. they go to heck really quick. Yeah. Huh. You know that commercial you always see about the guy— Driving on the golf course with the uh, with the vehicle, picking up the balls and people aim at them. Yeah, <laughs> the, it's a good that's vacation absolutely commercial. true. By the way, that oh, well. is absolutely true. Well, the, everybody what, will try to hit you. You're down there trying to get those darn things, and you do want those screens in really good condition. Well, yeah, yeah, that's uh, heck. That was I can remember. There's a driving range down there in Niles. We used to go to quite a bit, and they used to have a couple of cars that they would just park on the driving range. And it was always such a thrill when you hit the car. 
They still have that there, and I'm trying to think of the name of it. I went there. Oh, it's still there. Ago. It's probably the oh, same. Oh yeah, it's probably the it's same cars. I'm trying to hackers or something. Yeah, like hackers, that. hackers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's. Yeah, it. they still got that. They still got the car because that was fun. You just you you, you hit the ball and you just get the and right. You just wanted to out. That that said something about golf. It's it's such an it's one of those aggravating. You know, it's 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 easy to think you can do, but it's so tough to get really good at it because it. it it's nice when you you get the swing and it, you can just hear it on the club, and then it just goes exactly where you want it to go. And for me, that happens one out of every two hundred and forty swings. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't play. I, when I, gosh, I say when I took the job I got now, which was like eighteen, nineteen years ago, worked third shift in the last time of the week because what you do during the week when you're on thirds is as soon as you got home, you'd sleep. And then you'd wake up in the afternoon, but we'd try on the weekends so you could like at least spend some time with your family. We'd just stay up. So instead of going to sleep, we'd go to the golf course, you know, play, play a couple rounds of golf, maybe get a little cat nap in. And then at, you know, when everybody got home on Friday, uh, you could do something with them. Yeah. I learned as I got older though, like now, when you go there, you don't get the large bucket of balls. You might want to, but don't. Because even after the small bucket of balls, you're going to feel it the next day. Yes. And then I go play putt-putt get this other stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little bit too much work. Well, even when I did play golf, uh, you know, nine, nine holes, that's all I really wanted to. You know, by, by about 12 or 13, it's like, ah, I've had more than enough. But I did like getting out. You never became a golf addict. No, I, I never did either. Now I just drive by and I look and I go, huh, I wonder what's in that pond other than golf balls. And then we have a swim through the first underwater museum in the U.S. opening this month. Museum features sculptures beneath the surface and intermingling responsible tourism, environmentalism, and creativity. The phrase barren sand flat doesn't typically inspire creativity. It is this condition, however, that makes the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico the perfect spot for the United States' first underwater museum of art. Located about three-quarter miles off the Florida Panhandle, in the sugary white shoreline of Grayton Beach in Walton County, the UMA is scheduled to open at the end of June 2018. Like similar undertakings near Cancun and Muso Atlantico Lanzarote in the Canary Islands, the experience is best suited for scuba divers. On clear days, snorkelers will also be able to enjoy the submerged journey, which showcases seven sculptures at a depth around 60 feet and intermingles responsible tourism environmentals of creativity. The public space which will be free of charge for all visitors, is a collaboration between the Cultural Arts Alliance of Walton County, the South Walton Artificial Reef Association, with support of the Walton County Tourism Development Council and the National Endowments of the Arts. The creation rests on the Gulf's floor, will include a homage to Jacques Cousteau Aqualung, a hollow pineapple, a skull, and an anemophorous octopus. Not familiar with that particular type. All have been designated to facilitate and encourage the integration of sea life like coral growth, school of fish, and embryonic oysters. Above the surface, the partnership between the Arts Alliance and artificial reef building environmentalists may be curious, but creativity is by definition unpredictable and layered with epiphanies. In this case, the inspiration came to the CAA board member and artist Allison Wiki, who in 2007 was snorkeling above one of the artificial reefs, this one shaped like a turtle. I don't see why I, I am. I am, enjoy this. I think it's nice, 
but they're trying to make it sound like somebody had a, like a genius moment. We should have these I, all over. I'm curious about the, a moment ago she was saying on a clear day, I, I wonder if that meant on a day you had 60-foot visibility, it was good for snorkelers. But 60-foot down, you better have good visibility if you're going to snorkel it, right? Right, right. I think that's what they meant is that snorkelers could see it from the surface, not that they would. I don't know if too many. I mean, some of the hardcore, I mean, they're more free divers than snorkelers. They can go 60 right. feet, but you're not. Your average tourist snorkeler is, you know, 10 or 15 is, is probably pushing it. I wonder how far offshore that is. And the other part, if it does have decent vis, glass bottom boat. Yeah. Uh, they said in total, let's see, they're saying uh, it's deployed four snorkeling, nine dive reefs in the area. Each reef is composed of a dozen structures, and 700 have been in place since 2015. Oh, she's talking about the one that she had looked. Uh-huh. Huh. So the UMA sculptures are set in 3,500 3, to 5,000 pounds of concrete, contain no plastic or other toxic, toxic excuse me, materials. When the weather window is correct, the collection will be shuttled from its final resting spot on a barge. After the pieces of art are gently lowered to position by crane about 20 feet apart in the bottom of the gulf, as soon as delivery is complete, the exhibits are open for this unique museum's rare be- breed of art patron. Yeah, I would like to see something like this in Michigan, but uh, it, the bureaucracy would be so incredibly tough. Let me see. I've got to now weave. That does it for the normal scuba in the news items. We have some that were from last week that we didn't get to, which is some potentially cool scuba gear. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about this next item. For the, the this, last diving mask you'll ever need. Well, and just as a disclaimer, I don't think this diving mask exists. It seems a couple times a year we have a scuba diving related product that is just an industrial designer trying to show off what they're capable of envisioning. And in this particular case, because if you remember the one, the James Bondish rebreather. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was an industrial design company or, you know, a PhD or grad student trying to just show off some of their design. So this one's from Yanko Design, and it does say the last diving mask you'll ever need. Um, and they say these sure aren't your granddaddy scuba uh, or swimming goggles. This ultra-modern twist in the underwater specs called D-Mask addressed many of the issues divers currently encounter. Secured around the forehead, jaw, and chin, the design may cover the full face, but the results fear less restrictive than traditional goggles. While it's usable on its own by simply connecting the the unit to an air tank, users can breathe easily and move more naturally without the need for a sealed mouthpiece. It is also equipped with an innovative bone-conducting radio system that makes it possible to enjoy tunes and communicate with other divers conservationally, something that was impossible and limited to basic sign language before. Other f- cool features include built-in LED headlamps, a head-up projected display that indicates water conditions, depth, pressure, and weather all in the front shield. Uh, let's get down to the next text. Can be used for snorkeling or take oxygen bottle for scuba diving. And then they've, they've got a bunch of uh, detailed photos. Let me, oh, I don't think I gave this to the, the chat room. The interesting part, number one, is there's no nose pocket. How do you clear your nose? There's no nose pad for those who can't do the jaw wiggle. The secondary right. is, where does your exhaust go? There is no exhaust valve. Yeah. I, I think it's an interesting design idea. If you want to know where the exhaust goes, 
uh, look at the uh, the very first image, they show the bubbles yeah. just kind of leaking out the connector, which is supposed to be your your uh, second stage. And that would be one of the smallest second stages I've ever seen. Well, I'd like to see how you're going to prevent the defog, you know, from fogging up on it. Oh, they'll have magical defog by then. Uh, you know, if you can get a heads-up display to work like that, I don't know that you can get the right angle. You'd almost have to have something embedded like LCD. Well, I don't see how that uh, headlamp, you saw that, the one that's moving and the light intensity goes up and down. I don't know how that's going to help you. You've been in light conditions. Yeah. How much light that's going to help you? I, Maybe if you put your mask, your, your your gauge right up there, you might be able to see something. I don't. I think you know, if it doesn't take away from anything else, the ability to have the LED there, I don't think is a bad thing. Well, no, I can spot your head a lot. You know yeah. how the movies when they always have the yeah. space guys in their helmets with the lights inside? Well, they, they, when they, when so they first see their face. Yeah, because they're actors. And that's when they first said LEDs in the mask, I thought that's what they were doing was lighting the face. And so I think it's like looking in, you, you looking through a, a glass that is uh, backlit. You know, it's like a mirror. So if they lit inside the mask, you'd just be seeing your reflection. Uh, I I like the bone conductive part, if that actually works. I mean, that's that's the whole thing with a lot of this is, is anything that they've got in this design work. I don't know if that's Velcro or just the 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 shape or memory of the plastic that holds it to your face. But if you scroll on down and you look at that uh, one of the guys there, uh, let me see which one it is. Uh, it's it's like the last photo. Right, the last photo. That's a snorkel you have. That's a snorkel. But what's the problem? Look at that guy's face. And by the way, he's not wearing this. They just superimposed it on him. Yeah, full beard. Yes, you're not going to get a seal on that beard no matter what you're going to do. He's going to have a free flow. He's going to be looking at a curtain of bubbles. Or if he's snorkeling, he's just going to drown himself. So, yeah, nice try. Because yeah, if that's a snorkel, you don't have enough volume on that. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's interesting to look at. But as a diver, you can look at it and say, how come it's not going to work? Right. At least the way we're seeing it. Well, and then here they show the, like, if you look at the uh, the one where it shows the, looks like a mannequin dummy with a mask on. Yeah. They they show the ring of the, the top of the dive mask, which is a thin strip. But then in that mannequin, there's a good inch between that front and the guy's forehead. How are you closing that gap? There's nothing shown in there indicating that. Oh, yeah. I just see the other, yes, I see what you're talking about. So, and then also you're, you're trying to have a low volume mask, I assume in theory, but you've now have this full face mask, which, so they, they've, they're, you know, you look at other full face masks that have solved it and we'll see what's going on. But yeah, the, the pinching of the nose, you'd almost have to have a nose clamp on, at least for me, so that I, since I couldn't reach my nose, I could equalize. <laughs> well, that was the funny thing about those full face scuba masks we have is that, you know, you go down 10 feet and your ears start to hurt because mm-hmm. there is no pad. Yeah. Yeah, that that's what, what, what that's what's interesting is, you know, I can uh, surface dive down 20 feet do a breath hold. But in scuba gear, it seems like by the time you get about 12 or 15, you, you got to equalize. Not even breath hold. I got to do that at 10 or 15 myself. Yeah. Okay. Unless, so that, unless you like pain. No, not, not particularly. <laughs> that, that That's our other podcast 
Uh, the the Rima 6000 robot submarine found most valuable undersea Spanish treasure worth $17 billion. And this is a follow-up from an article we had uh, a few weeks ago. And so what's happening, what we're starting to see now, is that everybody who made anything that could possibly have been used on that is now trying to do it as a press release. So the Rima 6000 is a 13-feet robot submarine. Uh, in 2015, it discovered just not any shipwreck, but the most valuable and sought-after sunken treasure in the history of the floor. Uh, the state-of-the-art Spanish ship that ruled the seas for over 300 years, the San Jose, sank, carrying huge amounts of gold, silver, and emeralds. It was sunk by a British ship expedition after a long battle at sea involving cannon fire. The sunken San Jose is valued at a treasure worth $17 billion in today's dollars, and it was carrying all that to fund the war effort led by France against England. Gold? What gold? Yeah. So they say the Remus 6000 weighs in at 282 kilos, 13 feet fully autonomous underwater vehicle built for deep sea exploration, can dive down to a depth of 6 kilometers underwater, can operate up to 22 hours without rest. It has modern digital equipment like a modem, Wi-Fi. They said modern digital equipment like a modem. I guess that's relative, you know, from it's more modern than the shipwreck it's diving on. Uh, but also has Wi-Fi, GPS, a dual-frequency side scanner. Its eyes in the floor of the seabed. The Rima 6000 has also explored the Titanic back in 2010 before moving on to hunting down famous historical shipwrecks. The video in this particular article shed some light on just how the Rima 6000 was able to locate the final resting place of the San Jose off of Columbia. You always like to know how many weeks did they look for it? Yeah, well, like the Paul Allen one that he's been finding a lot, is he just like mowing the lawn for the whole ocean and that's how he's finding it? Or are they doing some research trying to look for specific targets? I would think most of them are doing research to at least get some grid area and hopefully not in a place that's going to go up and down in, in mountain underwater mountain area because that would be a real chore or more of a real Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you see here in the Great Lakes where we've got clay banks and different things and how hard it is to find anything in those. They didn't mention any price for that, did they? Well, if you, if you have to ask. <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is India Times. So, so we've got that one. And then something else was the EdgeTech Sonar instrumental in discovering of the $17 billion wreck. Edge Tech, a leader in high-resolution sonar imaging system and underwater technology, was key to the discovery of the most valuable shipwreck in the world, sought after by treasure hunters for more than 300 years. The wreck of the Spanish galleon, the San Jose, was fully discovered, or finally discovered, on the 27th of November 2015, but only just recently made public. The search was performed by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, WHIO Rima 6000 under, Autonomous Underwater Rescue, uh, well, I said rescue, Underwater vehicle, AUV, equipped with the EdgeTech 2200 side-scan sonar, the AUV mission planned and sonar data analysis for the project is supplied by GK Consulting of Derry, New Hampshire. San Jose, San Jose was a 62-gun flagship galleon of the Spanish fleet carrying gold, silver, emeralds from the mines of Peru back to Spain. It was sunk on the 8th of June, 1708, in a battle with the British off the Cartagena, Colombia coast. The ship sank so quickly there were only 11 survivors of the 600 people on board. 
Edgetech side scan sonar system provide operators the ability to image large areas of the seafloor during important deep sea water searches when the whereabouts of sunken objects are largely unknown. Edgetech's unique side scan sonar frequency pairing options, such as 400 900 kilohertz, enable very high resolution searches, while the 75 230 kilohertz combination provides long range. 2,000-meter-wide swath searches such as the one recently that resulted in discovery of the USS Indianapolis. Edgetech's owners are the benchmark for deep water searches and have been used in the recent Ocean Infinity search for missing Malaysian airliner flight MH370. Yeah, you might not want to mention that one. Edgetech takes great pride in knowing its high-quality, reliable underwater acoustic imaging system continues to assist in these demanding endeavors. Now, would something like this work in the Great Lakes? Are we just, Heck yes. You don't think it's too shallow? No, well, you got a thousand feet. Come on. Well, because the the depths are talking. I don't know how far down do they drag this, but they're getting a path. I mean, it'd be nice to get a to do two thousand meters in a time. But you well, can. Yeah, if I can get a mile swath, you know, left and right. That'd be nice. <laughs> it wouldn't take long to to go and map everything from uh, from down here all the way up to Holland. If somebody had the money, they would do it. It yeah. would be really cool for all the maritime museums and preserves so we could actually identify something. I wonder what it will wreck or not. What would it cost to rent a gear like that for a month? Well, that's why I was curious. Like you said, if they have to ask, you can't. Yeah, but it seems like you could get a grant. So you could do a proposal and say, you know what, we're going to go, and I don't know, what's a good time? Would it be June? Would that be about the best month of the year? Well, I would say July. So July. When do you have the most flat days out? When I'm not able to go. <laughs> I, uh, I'm just thinking. It seems that for diving, the visibility seems to be good until the lake starts to flip, which can either be by a storm or just it gets warm enough where it starts to do its thing. If I was a millionaire. I'd be out there with a heavy-duty, sophisticated side scan and magnetometer, and we'd be finding some of these wrecks. Yeah, it, and it kind of sounds like this is one of them to have. Yeah, give me a summer and that kind of gear. Oh, that, that's that, maybe that's what we just got to do. We're looking at this wrong. We just got to do like a business plan and say, hey, you do this, here's what we'll do. Well, well, I, we're so small potatoes and the return on their investment versus $17 billion, uh, they're probably not going to listen. Oh, no, no. I, we, we would have to get local funding. You'd have to have some sort of state funding. Well, You'd we could do a GoFundMe thing and then uh, offer to give proportionate credit to everybody that donated. So when we found something, everybody could say, hey, I participated. Like you did uh, when you did an investment yeah. for Florida. Yeah. That might be interesting. Yeah, but a half decent client is going to cost you fifty thousand. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm not even saying you buy it. I I think that this must be something you'd be able to rent. Uh, even on the cheaper site scans, I actually looked for some of those already this summer. And for a week, you're talking in the thousands. Right. Yeah. I I think you'd reasonably have to have, uh, you know, probably just for the scanner because you'd want to if you're going to do it. Let's do everything. Do scanner. Do magnetometer. Uh, the other approach well, I've Go ahead. You got you got to figure into insulation on the boat, and then you got to have the training. Unless you're going to have whoever provided the gear also do the diagnostics and running for. It. Yeah. And training for that is not cheap either, time wise. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. Um, my thought also is that you record everything and then you collect the data and then you can read and analyze it off season. You, know, you, you take your, your month and you just say, we're going to mow everything. And then, you know, you have somebody, you know, at night or whenever. If Actually, if you could, you'd run it like three shifts. You know, as long as it's not. No, you'd run right. You'd run it 24-7. Yep. That's like they do the big boats. They're not out there. You know, that's time is money. Why are you going to let it sit on the boat for, yeah. you know, 16 hours? So so you probably want, uh, you know, kind of like a, a Coast Guard, you know, buoy dropper type vessel. Well, even the U of N boat, you could do it, but. You'd have to have a nice, you know, attention to D. The nice part there is you're never far enough away that you couldn't have a boat meet you someplace, change crew if you had to. Oh, yeah. What I'm saying? So you could logistically run it easier in the Great Lakes than you could anywhere else. No. And I I think what you do is you just have your paths and, you know, the end of each. I mean, you do long mowing, and then the end of each path you just have somebody – you know, a boat come out, meet you, you keep going. I, you know, a lot of those larger vessels, you can have pretty good-sized tanks so you can do some extended run times. Um, and you just keep cycling people on, or you just, everybody stays in the boat, and you just hot bunk and sleep, wake up, and trade off. Well, like I said, if you got the boat and you got the gear, you're gonna and you're paying for it by the month, you're going to run it you know, yeah. 24-7 if you can. And then you got to have technicians that are available or someone if you have a breakdown for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Well, and then the other approach would be to do some sort of, uh, you make an autonomous underwater vehicle where it, on its own, like a little torpedo type thing, and it just goes and maps, and when it gets done, it comes back home. Well, most of those are still going to be, what, 12, 18-hour times for run? Oh, yeah. And they're normally out at sea pickup? Hmm. Oh, well. Yeah, where's that billionaire who, who wants to donate something? <laughs> well, maybe somebody will accidentally listen to our pod and say, hey, those guys, let's let's go give them a shot at them. Yeah. Let's see what they can do in two weeks. Sure, sure. And that's when we'll have hurricane season on Lake Michigan. Yeah, that's like, what? We've never, we don't have hurricanes. <laughs> and then this last uh, one, potentially cool scuba gear is a woman mm-hmm. builds a seven-meter diving pool in an office building. Uh, Yunzi, 24, has built a seven-meter deep pool for scuba diving in an office building in East China's uh, Zhenjiang province. Used scuba dive for the first time during a visit to Taiwan in 2014. Since then, she's continued her training and achieved the highest level of certification. Uh, wow. What is she doing that at 24? She has the money to build this. I don't know. Did you go to the third picture? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It looks like what they did is they took the underground parking lot, made it waterproof, put a big window in it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Isn't that what it looks like? It does. It does look like that. Or you just took a floor of the building. (laughs) Basement floor. Yeah. Looked like you'd have a little bit better scenery than a parking lot, though. But, hey, it'd be fun. So seven meter deep, so about 22 feet. That's enough yeah. to get wet. That's a parking garage roof. Yeah. Very cool. Well, that does it for Scuba the News and potentially cool scuba gear. If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, uh, why not give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts? We also can use your assistance. 
go to www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, click on over to our Patreon page, and you know any amount that you're able to give would certainly help. One dollar, two dollars, three dollars. If you do three dollars or more, you get early access to our show notes before the show is recorded, and then uh, we're getting ready. I got a whole bunch in the can that we'll be getting out there. So, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for their donations. So, but here we are, June seventh. The first full week of June coming to an end, and I bet a bunch of people are getting <coughs> some diving. And unfortunately, it isn't me. <laughs> I heard uh, through the. I'm trying to remember where I heard it from, but I think somebody went out to check Thirsty Thursday at uh, Niles down in the river. Oh, I did not hear the. Fi- I did not hear if uh, it was a successful venture or not. I do know that somebody looked at it yesterday. And it was not the bestest, and it also was very odiferous. Yes. Well, if if you so, heard if you heard about the uh, Bering Springs Dam, I don't know if you followed that. Well, I knew that they were drawing it down, but that was last month, mm-hmm. uh, six inches a day till they got down three feet from the top. Yeah, and it's not the lowest they've drawn it down, but it is pretty low. And if you look out there at the uh, uh, Lake Chapin, I said Orinoco Lake. It's Lake Chapin. Uh, there's islands where there's never been any before. My brother-in-law, who does a lot of boating out there, he's always shocked when this happens because all these places where you're running around 40 miles an hour in a ski boat and uh, you realize that there's a big tree that's all snagged up right there and you're probably missing it by less than six inches. Yep. I've scanned that and I've got side scans. And it's one of those, like you said, I did not realize how shallow that place was. Um, You go to the pilings off to the right where the urban inner urban used to be yep on the opposite side of Berrien, mm-hmm. it's less than five feet deep there yeah you go to the first section over there by uh, Berrien springs where that first pylon is missing mm-hmm. all right that's 24 feet and i've got some fantastic side scan of the that whole pillar falling down on the bottom so if you want to know what it looks like i'm going to put a picture of, of lake chapin and that section and then i'm going to put a side scan by it of what it looks like of that pillar on the bottom a lot of people love to see that and i've got a picture of it of what is now lake chapin before it was lake chapin Mm -hmm. which meant before they did the dam i've seen a lot of those photos uh where they had the inner urban in because they built the inner urban up high enough so that when they flooded the lake for the dam that it would still be above the surface Right, and that's what most people don't realize is it would have been interesting for them to see the pictures of that place before the dam was completed and then the water filled in. Well, just think of how many tons of silt have filled that up. Because those, those uh, abutments were quite high when they made it. Because it yeah. the, the river most of the year was a fairly narrow, slow-moving river is, is the stories I had heard. Well, you figure 200 years ago, you could navigate all 217 miles with a canoe. Mm-hmm. What really killed everything, and the boat traffic was basically in 1840, 1850s, when the trains came across. That took away the, the need to have shipping because it was quicker and easier by train. That's what killed boat traffic. And that's when they started building the dams um, on the river. I think there's 26 dams now on that 218-mile stretch. Yeah, I, when we had the flooding earlier in the year, I went and looked, and uh, there was a commission done 
oh, what was it, five, six years ago, that was investigating all the dams. And with the ultimate goal is there's a big desire now to get rid of dams in a lot of these rivers. Which well, I'm, go back 200 years ago, and when we were now diving, it was not unusual to do 12 feet, several hundred pound sturgeon. Oh, yeah. And the migration of a lot of the fish and their habitat, as soon as you deal with the dam, they couldn't get there because they didn't make fish ladders back in the day. No. Well, and then that, that size of fish is not going up one of these fish ladders. No. He, he can't make the first turn. <laughs> right. And at least when they first started building a lot of the dams, they did a, not a spillway, but they did um, a lot. It was required so you could put a boat in, drop it down, and then continue. Right. And after the uh, train traffic picked up of cargo, the boat traffic didn't, they went by the wayside. It, it's interesting when you do look at the history, though. So Thirsty Thursday. Now, so, been... Yep, I don't know what happened there, but, and you know they tried to get out over the weekend, right? I saw that they had tried to go out. Uh, I talked to uh, Jim Schultz, and he, he he was trying to get out as well, but it just didn't work out. He had something come up, and they said that the... Uh, those that did got to the end, got to the end of the uh, the pier, and there was a pretty good chop happening. Well, here I'll, I'll read it for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, we tried. We never made it out of the channel. When we hit the good six foot swell, took water over the bow. The beer escaped the fridge. Popped the caps off of two of the escapees. Comma. Luckily, someone was ready to drain them before they could become a problem. We turned right around and headed back. They would have had four divers down on that, and I was John. Kirk, Sarge, and uh, I believe that was uh, Bob. Yeah, so they said refrigerator with beer. I'm picturing it was John's boat. Uh, I would. It's possible, but it sounds more like a, a Zodiac. I thought it was a Zodiac, but beer in the fridge. I, I'm, then maybe they meant cooler. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And then uh, Kevin did post some pictures because he did some underwater shots for the mermaids that we had had last week and talked. So he did have some nice little shots. Uh, that I would have loved to have been there instead of. So it looked like he had some fun there. And I know that uh, uh, Amy got another dive in, but I don't know where, uh, her and Kevin. Yeah. Because they did Savannah last week, and then they got another dive in since then. And then there's been activity at Lake 16, but I don't know the names of the people who went out there. Yet. Yeah, and, and Lake 16 is perfect for you get blown off the big lake, you can still get wet. Yeah. And if you're trying out your side scan, take it there because you've got some known targets, and I'll give you some real good references for what you're looking at underwater. I saw people asking for maps of the items, and I thought we had that map on the uh, Mud Club page. I, po I posted it, reposted it to them. We've uh, lost all of our dive sites off our club site. Really? I'm trying to, we changed our, um, our uh, what do you call it, whenever somebody the theme posted it. Or... The host. Uh, I'll have to look through because I'm sure the content is still there. I'm sure it is too, but where I don't know yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for it. That, that, that's that's one of the goals of a website is make it as tough as possible. It's a treasure hunt in itself. Yeah, because I'd like to get the sites back because that's where we did have the, uh, a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. I am just well, now I'm, I'm real curious to see if they got into the river tonight. Yeah, hopefully they did. I am just now getting. So uh, I've been just so busy. I've been backed up with projects. I can't know if I'm coming or going. I was in Chicago yesterday. So, so hopefully this weekend will not be a dive weekend, but I've got to be getting close. Hopefully I can get in the water before July 4th. Oh, that's <laughs> so sad. 
Well, I haven't been in myself. I've had issues, but uh, eventually I'm going to get wet. And I do have another lesson for life, if you're ready for that. Sure. Let's let's go ahead and hear it. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Okay, lessons for life, sinking like a stone. Willie and her friend David were excited about their special lobster hunting location. No one else thought to dive there because the visibility was so poor, but they were going to catch their limit in two easy dives. Now, Willie was tired and out of breath when they reached the descent marker, but she knew it would be better on the bottom. She let the out of her BC and quickly dropped out of sight. When she hit the sand, she tried to take a breath, nothing came. So let's talk about the diver. Willie had been diving on and off for more than 10 years. Some years she dived frequently, others just a few times, but she always made it in the water for lobster. She and her dive buddy Dave had long ago discovered a special spot where it was easy to find all the lobsters they wanted. Willie was 44 years old with no known medical condition. The day of the dive. Their first dive of the day had been uneventful. The buddies had filled their collection bags and made it to the surface within moments of each other. The visibility in their secret spot was normally low, but it was even worse today. Wind chop was stirring the surface in the shallow location. The poor viz made it difficult to stay in contact with each other, but the reason that didn't matter much. They each knew what the other was doing, and they were less than 15 foot of the water. They had dived together many times and weren't worried about being separated underwater. Between dives, they talk about their favorite ways to cook the lobsters they caught, made plans to invite friends over for a big party. To get to the lobster spot, the divers made a shore entry and then swam out on the surface to a marker buoy where they began their dive. To make it easier to stay underwater at the shallow dive site, Willie was carrying 20 pounds of extra lead. She didn't want to have to worry about floating up and down with each breath or when waves passed overhead. Before the second dive, Willie and Dave assembled their gear, then pulled on their wetsuits back on. The air was warm, so they immediately donned their scuba units, entered the water to swim to the buoy. The surf and wind had picked up during the surface interval, making the surface swim harder. Willis swam to the buoy on her back. Because of the extra lead she was carrying, her BC was completely full. The pressure from the BC-style jacket made it hard for her to take a deep breath as she swam. Both Willie and Dave were winded on the surface, so neither wanted to wait before they began diving. Soon as they reached the bark buoy, they both put their regulators in their mouth, gave a quick signal, then began releasing air from their BCs. They accessed. As Willie exhaled, she began her descent. Between that and the extra weight she was carrying, she dropped to the bottom like a rock. Poor visibility and the underwater surge caused the divers to lose sight within each other immediately. Willie hit the sand in 13-foot seawater. Dave was troubled by the poor visibility, but he wasn't worried. He continued his dive and surfaced 40 minutes later with a full collection. He realized Willie hadn't finished her dive yet, but he still wasn't concerned. Waiting on the beach 15 minutes passed before Dave began to get nervous. The dive was so shallow, so he really wasn't concerned about her running out of air, but neither of them normally put that long to catch lobster. Another 15 minutes passed before Dave called for help and a search began for Willie. Recovery divers concluded, uh, found her body on the seat fo- uh, floor an hour and a half later, just 13 feet below the surface. Investigation included Willie air. Willie's air had never been turned on. Medical examiner ruled her death drowning due to insufficient air. The analysis. Many long-time divers will tell you if you haven't forgotten something on a dive, you aren't diving enough. Getting distracted and forgetting to put in your weights or turn on your air before jumping into the water is inevitable. Really is not the first accident that began when a diver started descending with her air turned off. 
Many experienced divers think the idea of a buddy check before a dive is something for newbies and someone less experienced. That the overconfidence is where the problems began. If William Dave had simply taken 30 seconds to do a quick gear check, Willie would have realized her air was off and everything would have been fine. So the question is, why didn't she simply swim to the surface, turn on her air, and continue the dive? We don't know exactly what happened in those moments after she began her descent, but it is reasonable to assume that panic played a major role in the accident. She was carrying much, much to weight. She was a, had a hard surface swim to the dive site. She was winded when she began her descent. When she hit the sand without air, she was unable to inflate her BC to get her buoyancy under control or to counteract the additional lift she was carrying. Out of air, overweighted, out of breath, panic lightly set in almost immediately. It is possible Willie made it back to the surface, but being unable to inflate her BC, she would have struggled before sinking back below the water. Common mistake panic divers make is forgetting to jettison their weights. Either on the bottom or struggling on the surface to stay afloat, a quick release of the weight belt or by pulling out her integrated weight pockets would have made her instantly buoyant and had her floating on the surface. There, of course, she could have orally inflated her BC, but that didn't happen. Panic is a frequent topic in this column and as we've continually discussed. One definition for panic from Oxford dictionaries is sudden uncontrollable fear or anxiety, often causing wildly unthinking behavior. When panic strikes, rational thought and the ability to think through a problem goes right out the window. Panic divers forget how to handle an emergency. The only way to counteract panic situations is to practice emergency drills to the point they become second nature. You're not thinking, you're doing. If you haven't practiced releasing your weights or clearing your mask, or any other emergency skill, since you completed your open water course, it's been way too long. Dive accidents are rare, but they don't happen only in deep water or in caves. And they don't happen only to people who do things they aren't supposed to. Under certain circumstances, accidents can happen in shallow water on what should be an easy dive. All it takes is not paying attention to the details, forgetting to do a basic check, beginning a dive without being ready. Lessons for life, practice emergency drills regularly. Remove and replace your weights in the water. Stretch out and cramp. Practice air sharing skills. Flood and clear your map. All the skills that can save your life. Before you get in the water, do that buddy check. It takes only a few seconds before you get in the water, but it can save you a lot of headache afterwards. Number three, do not dive overweighted. Perform a buoyancy check when you get in the water. If you need an extra pound or two, fine. But if you have to fully inflate your BC to stay on the surface, you're carrying too much weight. And that little practice we always do of regulator in your mouth, you're taking two to three breaths, watching your pressure gauge to make sure it doesn't go to suddenly zero and that it doesn't bounce when you're breathing on it is something that we picked up. Most of the club members do, and it's a very good thing to do. So lessons for the day. Very good information. Uh, the reason I thought that was especially important for us is what depth are we diving for our bottle? Right there in that same depth, that 50 Absolutely. Feet. And if you get dumped off that boat and you happen to be in a hole and your air is not on or you lose something, your BC wasn't hooked up for your inflator, I mean, that could just as easily have been instead of out of air, you can't inflate the BC. And then you're drugged along because the current's pretty swift. Then you get caught in the strainer one of those trees down there and snags you. So 13 feet 
all it takes is what? Anything over your nose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, they always, you can drown in a teaspoon of water. I think I've heard the saying before. So it's, uh, you know, any depth really. Yep. And like they said, though, had you had an alternate air source, meaning a bailout bottle, that story would have had a totally different ending. We wouldn't be reading or talking about it. So hopefully it makes you think about, yeah, I do a lot of shallow water river work, but, you know, maybe I'd better do a few things a little different. So it's a good wake-up, good reminder. I was just looking through the uh, the Mud Club site, and we have so many pages on Lake 16. <laughs> They're actually posts. So somewhere I'll I'll have to do some more hunting, but I'm missing something somewhere on that. Wow, we've been doing this quite a while. We got stuff all the way back to 2010. <laughs> oh, you found it on the site? I found a bunch of but there's that we had a. I thought we had pages where it had like the map and everything. Yeah, it, I always said how deep it was, how big it was. Did it have a bathroom? Yeah, uh, we, the access, yeah. fish depth, yeah. And I think what happened is it looks like we updated some pages and maybe overwrote them. So we'll have to go back through and find it. Yeah, because I had aerial shots of uh, Singer, Lake Cora, all of those. So you'd have a real good spatial view of the exits, both at the uh, east and west side for Cora, for example. Mm-hmm. And the topo charts that gave you the depth. Yeah, we had, we, had a, we had a ton of them. It looks like we started the website in January 2010. With some ice dives. Sounds about right. Oh, and the, yeah, and I think that was the first lake we documented, because here I'm looking and we have the uh, Lake 16 map. And we spelled 16, S-I-X-T-E-E-N. So I'm looking, there's two of them. The PDF this is incredibly exciting radio <laughs> of me searching on the Mud Club site. Yeah, you know, I... I don't even know how I begin to get enough time to go back and redo all this stuff. I don't know how I had enough time then. Oh, this is cool. Uh, I'm pasting in the chat room. Are you seeing these that I'm pasting, Mac? Uh, I don't have that on even. Hang on, let me if I can relocate it. Oh. Uh, no, I must be on a different page because I I've just got. Are you in? You must be in general. Who's my audio? Yeah. So let me. Uh... Because here's one, because we have one which is oh, the... Oh, I see you're typing. I just, I just went in the channel you're in. You are you must be in the general. Uh, I'm, yeah, that's the 16, I see it. Yeah, so that's the old, uh, it looks like a DNR map. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we've got that one, and then, ooh, that was odd to go. And then I think I've got the same one that you had. I pasted it on Facebook in the Mud Club site for Kevin... Then here's the other one that I've got, which this is the one that has all the lines out there and Lake 16 map. Yep, I see you put the other one out, yes. So that's that's the two of them that I've had in the past. Yeah, and I got a different version of that somewhere around here too. Yeah, this Lake 16 one uh, with everything in there, is that still current? Because this has got to be almost 12 years old. I I wouldn't swear I didn't write those. I I got those sent to me also. Yeah. Because there's some of these things I don't think I've actually ever gone <clears throat> out to. No, you haven't. If you've not been on, if you've not been in Deco, you haven't been there. Yeah. Because if I, you do the whole route, you will be just about in Deco. Uh, you're doing a tech dive. Yeah, I've done the, uh, the Batmobile. I think I've done 
The thing that uh, most people don't realize about Lake 16 is it sounds like it's a little in, inland lake, but there's spots where you're getting down into 85 feet. Yeah. And I think it may even go uh, deeper than that. Yeah, I, I have been in deco kind of unintentionally, but usually what happens is you'll get in the deco if you're diving on the dive computer, and as you're heading back, you usually come up out of it before you even get to the platform. Now, I'd like to have a map for Ross Township. That one I don't have, and there's been many times where I've been out there, and I, I'll see half the items, but I but I, I never see them all in a trip. I just... I never have either. I have actually, it took me forever to find the trampoline made of chain mall or whatever that is. Yeah, yeah, the, the chain link fence. But I've yes. got pictures of everything, finally. You know, the Indian chief, the the ice shanty, the mm-hmm. basketball hoops, railroad tracks, signs. Yeah, you have the... Uh, the Motorcycle. Ice, ice boat. I, yep, ice boat. Uh, there's a sailboat. There's a bunch of stuff. I got pictures of everything, but that was not in one dive. No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, that's a that's a fun place to dive to. Except I was diving at last year, the year before, and I'm out there by the motorcycle, and there's this anchor and chain come drag by my head. It's like how, how close did I? Yeah, how close did I come to getting snagged in that damn thing? And you're wondering why some of the lines are no longer there. That's because why are they dragging that around? I have not a freaking clue. I didn't come up. Yeah. Yeah, they're doing that. You don't know what you're going to find if you get to the surface. Right. But I was surprised. I was not expecting that because the boat was underway. It was not, you know, trying to put the anchor out or bringing the anchor in. They were underway dragging it. Oh, that's interesting. Well, let's see. What what else do we have on the list that we haven't gotten to? I think we've done most of our plugs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and... You know, thank everybody who who helps out with the show, like we have mentioned before with Patreon, but also a special shout-out to Jim Billings, who does our website. Uh, we have other supporters who I'm forgetting right now, uh, but you're all certainly appreciated. And if you have any ideas, drop us a line at the show at scoobobsessed.com. I need to get some time here now that maybe it's looking like I could potentially have some breathing room and we'll get some guests back on and, and start doing some of that stuff. Uh, I also talk to those mermaids. No, I I didn't. Yeah, I. I'm saying may catch her later. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll have to have them on the show if if they're still willing to come on. I don't know if they got anything to promote or not, but uh, we'll we'll have them on. I just ran out of time to get that all coordinated. Uh, Well, the one lady does it professionally, and uh, she actually does not costumes, but she does the tails and stuff. mm -hmm. So she actually sells the stuff. Yeah. So that could be interesting. Yeah. And you it, might have to. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have them on. So it's, it's not that we don't want them on. We just, I got too busy and I want to have enough time to where I can help people get on the program and we can have them on. So, but right now it's just a matter of getting some diving in. It's, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a hypocrite, but if you're not getting out there diving, you got to wonder what you're doing. Uh, so yeah, I got to find a way of, of getting back in because I did Ironsides and I, I knew I hadn't, I haven't done enough. Enough diving to even want to consider the deeper wrecks. I got to get get worked back into it. It won't take me long, but you know, two or three dives I want to have in before I start doing anything a little bit deeper. That's a smart way to do it. Yeah, I mean, when would you rather find out you don't have something working? <laughs> I'd like to to do it when it's shallow. You know, have confidence in my gear and my setup, and you know, work out the cobwebs and and have all that stuff going, and then you go do the deeper stuff. Uh, 
Now I've missed, you know, maybe, you know, I'm getting to where, you know, my son's a junior in high school. Next year I'll be a senior. Uh, so I have an idea next spring is going to be just as busy, busy, but maybe it's the year after. Maybe that's the one I can, I, I want to have one year. Cause it seemed like the, 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 that first year I got in the club, we dove every month for almost two years straight. And I just have not been able to duplicate that. And I miss having people do that. Yeah. It gives me somebody to go with and, uh, yeah. It's it's fun to go with other people, and it's, it was really fun with you guys because you were new at it, and your enthusiasm was contagious. Yeah, that's what, that's what we've got to do. I I see that the uh, the dive club keeps getting new members in, so we still have some potential. Now we need the young blood. That's what we need. Yeah. Well, I think if we don't have anything, do you have anything you want to plug before we go on? Uh not today. I'll. Might have something later, but not today. And if Kevin was on, he'd be saying, make sure you go and visit your libraries. And we want to do that. And we should have some updates here coming up pretty soon. I think this week, is it this weekend? Or maybe it's next weekend we have an underwater preserve meeting. So we'll, we'll have I don't some. know. I was, I was going to suggest that uh, <laughs> if you have not read the initial write-up for the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve, uh, I will send you a copy. Because yeah, I, I am encouraging everybody to read that because it's going to be an eye-opener. Yeah, I, I need to. Yeah, if you could send me a copy, I'd appreciate it because I don't think I've yeah. got it. If you look at the analysis, they did a really good analysis of the pros and cons, and yeah. it you need to look at that before you make any more decisions because they had seventy five members when they started. Yeah, and funds. Oh, they had money. Well, they got a ten thousand dollar grant for some studies that I'd like to get a hold of the study, yeah. uh, and another grant was to do side scanning, which. I'm not sure where it went, and I'll talk to you after we get offline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got some theories there. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure you'll edit that part out of the Oh, of, co- of course. We, we, we edit all this. We're, we're very highly scripted and polished, and everybody will, will have no idea that we did that. <laughs> so on that lo- note, let's go ahead and uh, get on to the bad, almost scuba joke. Uh, my two-year-old cousin scared us one summer by disappearing during one of our lakeside vacations. More than a dozen relatives searched for, through the forest and the shoreline, and everyone was relieved when we found Alex playing calmly in the woods. Listen to me, Alex, his mother said sharply. From now on, when you go someplace, you tell Mommy first, okay? Alex thought for a moment and then said, Okay, Disney World. From the mouth of babes. <laughs> yes. He's got it figured out. Maybe I could, Does that work for me, too? Mommy, Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii. Hawaii, Mommy. Yeah, how about just try Pawpaw Lake. Pawpaw Lake. <laughs> yeah, it's Lake 16. <laughs> so until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs>